Good morning, everyone. My name's Peter, I'm one of the pastors here, and today we are continuing our series, Found Family, where we're talking about how we are the family of God and how we relate to each other. And I wanna start with us considering today, if you were looking to improve yourself, how would you go about it? What methods would you use if you were looking to improve yourself? You know, would you start with maybe uh, vitamins, supplements? You know, that's where you would uh, begin the process. Uh, maybe you would look to reading more, you know, gaining more knowledge. Or maybe you're going to take a course or go back to school. And that's how you would consider if I'm going to improve myself, that, that's how I would go about it. Uh, maybe you'd get a, a life coach or a counselor, somebody to talk to, uh, somebody one-on-one, -on -one, a mentor uh, to help you. Uh, you could pray or meditate or you could uh, do exercise as a way of improving yourself. Or, or you might think, you know what, I'm already here. How can you improve on perfection? Or you might be somebody saying, you know what, that sounds like a lot of work. You know what, uh, I think I'll just stay here. This is as good as it gets. Why try and improve myself? Well, uh, whenever I'm trying to improve myself, you know, I, I, there's some things that I'm trying to do right now. I'm trying to eat less sugar. I'm trying to listen to less podcasts and trying to read more. You know, I, I've cut out social media. I read a lot less news. Uh, I'm trying to be more intentional about bringing the presence of Jesus into my everyday life. And, but when I look at the methods, the ways that I go about trying to improve myself, it always shows me how individualistic I am. Because ideally, I just want to change on my own, in my own way. That's how I want to improve myself. I, ideally, I would be able to just go away and then re-emerge later fully formed and fully developed and just like come back and be like, look at me now, everybody. I am totally improved. I don't really want to invite people into the process of watching the messiness of me improving myself. Anybody relate to that? Do you see how individualistic you are? How you're, you tend to want to just improve yourself on your own, on your own terms, in your own way? Well, if you consider how you would go about improving yourself, now, what if you were setting out to improve the world? If you were setting out to make worldwide improvements, what methods would you use to go about that? Because when we look at Jesus, it is undeniable that he changed the world that the world has been completely changed since Jesus appeared, since he was born, since he lived his life. He changed the world. But when we look at the methods that Jesus used to change the world, they're pretty different from the methods that you or I would typically choose. Uh, so Jesus, he didn't write a book. He had no children. Jesus uh, didn't travel widely. He didn't go on a world tour. Jesus had no military power. He had no political power. He had no wealth or riches. And yet, he changed the world completely. 
How did he do that? Well, he took 12 ordinary men and he shaped them into a community that grew until today there are an estimated 2.6 billion Christians in the world. How, how did Jesus do that? How did he take 12 ordinary people and grow them into now where there is 2.6 billion of us who would call ourselves Christians? How did he do that? And as we look at how Jesus did that, I think it's going to help us to see how we can improve ourselves, how we can improve our families, and how we can improve our church. So this is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at Jesus and his disciples. When we look at uh, the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, uh, he is walking along the shore, and he sees uh, two guys, Simon, who he comes to call Peter, and Andrew. They're brothers, and they are uh, throwing their nets out into the water. And Jesus comes along, and he says, come and follow me. Be my disciple. Come follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they leave their nets behind, and they go, and they begin to follow Jesus. And just a little bit further down the seashore, uh, he sees James and John, and they're sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, and they are mending their nets. And Jesus says to James and John, come and follow me, be my disciple. And they leave their dad, and they leave the nets and the boat, they just leave everything behind, and they go and follow Jesus. These are the first disciples. Jesus just walks along and says, come and follow me, and they do. Uh, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is walking along and he sees Levi, also called Matthew, and he's a, a tax collector in his little tax booth. And Jesus says, Levi, come and follow me. Be my disciple. And Levi, Matthew, he leaves his tax collector booth. He leaves everything behind, and he goes to be a disciple of Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, just one chapter later, we're going to read this starting in verse 12 to verse 16. It says, one day soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be his apostles. Here are their names. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. When we look at the disciples in the Gospels, we see how ordinary they are. They really, truly were just 12 ordinary guys. Four fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, many of the others we don't even know a lot about. You know, if you had to name just right now again all 12 of the disciples after we just read the list out, how many of them might we miss? Just ordinary guys. And when we look at them in the Gospels, we really see how ordinary they are because they argued with each other. They argued about who was the greatest among them. Jesus is constantly correcting his disciples throughout the Gospels. They jockeyed for position and prestige to where James and John, they got their mom to come to Jesus 
and to argue on their behalf and ask if they could have the best seats in Jesus' kingdom. They wanted to sit on his right and on his left, and Jesus had to correct them that that's not how it was going to work. And the other ten disciples saw that, and they were upset about it, probably because they wished that they had got their moms to come to try and get them the best seats in Jesus' kingdom. So Jesus is constantly correcting them. There's parents who are trying to bring their children to Jesus to be blessed, and the disciples are scolding the parents. They won't let, and Jesus has to stop and correct them. Yes, let the children come to me. Just 12 ordinary guys. When we look at the disciples in the Gospels, and then we look at 2.6 billion of us, we think, how did this happen? Just 12 ordinary guys who somehow turned the world upside down, became the leaders of the greatest movement that the world has ever seen. How did that happen? Now, I think when we look at the disciples, it's easy for us to see it wasn't really so much about the disciples. It wasn't so much about the students. It wasn't so much about the followers as it was about Jesus, about the master, about the school teacher, Jesus, to his disciples. Now, in the time of Jesus uh, and throughout history, there's been many people who have had disciples. And so it was common at the time for rabbis to have disciples. We see uh, in the Gospels that John the Baptist, who was a prophet, uh, who came to prepare the way for Jesus, he too had disciples. So it wasn't unusual that Jesus had disciples, but when we look at Jesus, what we see with the disciples, how ordinary they were, but there's some specific ways that Jesus was unusual in regards to his disciples. I want to give you three ways that Jesus was unusual. Number one is that Jesus went and chose his disciples. That is not how things happen typically at that time. You would go and you would present yourself to a rabbi for consideration and say, hey, what about me? You know, maybe I could be your student. Maybe I could be your follower. But Jesus goes around and he's walking on the shore saying, you come and follow me. He chose them to be his disciples. That was unusual. That's not how things typically worked. In John 15 verse 16, Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And you know what? Today, Jesus is still choosing disciples. Jesus has called you. Jesus wants you to be his disciple. He's choosing his disciples. Jesus did not pick the best and the brightest. He just picked ordinary guys. He allowed for sinners to come and to be his disciples, to follow after him. Unworthy people. This was unusual. Jesus chose his disciples. The second thing that was unusual about Jesus is that he said, follow me. He went to James and to John and to Peter and to Andrew and he said, come follow me. That was unusual. When we look at the Buddha, he said, follow after my teaching. When I'm gone, my doctrine and the discipline." They will be your teacher. Muhammad, in his last sermon, he said, follow my teaching and my way of life. 
It's my words that need to be passed on. The rabbis said, follow the Torah. The Greek philosophers said, contemplate my ideas. It's all about knowledge. It's about the ideas. Jesus said, follow me. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. When we look at Jesus in the Gospels, he's not just pointing people to his teaching. He's not even just pointing them to his way of life. He's constantly pointing them to himself. He's saying, it's all about me. Follow me. Don't just follow what I say. Follow me. Even what Pastor Todd read today as he came up here, he talked about how Jesus says, come to me all of you who are weary and heavy laden. He's always drawing people to himself. It's unusual. Jesus says, follow me. He said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. The third thing that was unusual about Jesus was that he called his disciples to a high standard. His disciples left everything And they went and followed Jesus. Not everyone who Jesus called and said, follow me, they didn't all follow him. Some had excuses or they had other priorities. I've got to go and bury my father or this isn't a really good time for me. And Jesus said, he just kept going. He had a high standard. Jesus demanded radical obedience from his disciples ahead of every other obligation. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus took ordinary people and he shaped them together. He brought them together into a spiritual community where he shaped and formed them around himself. Not just around his teaching, not just around his way of life, around him. He was the center, the linchpin. And he brought them and he shaped them around himself. And it was more than just the 12. We see that there were many disciples of Jesus. There were 72 disciples that Jesus sent out in pairs in Luke chapter 10. And there, it wasn't just men, there were women who traveled with Jesus and with the disciples. And they were financially supporting Jesus and his ministry. And you can see that in Luke chapter 8, verse 1 to 3. So there were the 12 that Jesus identified as his apostles. He called them, they were unique. Even among those 12, there was the three he was the closest with. But then there were many other disciples and followers of Jesus who gathered around, who Jesus brought together to form this spiritual community being shaped and formed around Jesus. And then they spent three years traveling and ministering with Jesus. Those 12 ordinary men, they got to see Jesus raise the dead. They got to see demons being cast out. They were sent out by Jesus to go and to minister into towns and to spread the good news of what Jesus was doing to prepare for the places that Jesus was going to go. They got to see the integrity of Jesus. They saw him when he was alone just with them and they saw him when the big crowds were gathered. They saw the spiritual practices of Jesus. They saw how he prayed. They saw the richness of the scriptures that were inside of him and how it came out in how Jesus spoke. They got to be firsthand witnesses to these things that Jesus was doing. 
his reliance on the Father. They got to eat with him and live with him. They became friends with God in the flesh. And then, one night, Judas betrayed Jesus. And then Jesus was arrested. And he was taken before the high council and the high priest. And then Peter, who was head of the disciples, always listed first. He denies Jesus three times publicly. And Jesus is found guilty by the high council, the high priest. And then he's taken before Pilate. And he's ordered that he's going to be flogged and crucified. And then they watch as Jesus is beaten and mocked. And then right in front of them, he is crucified and they watch him die. And then he's buried. And then this this whole thing of the disciples, they've been brought together into this spiritual community. And they were being formed around Jesus And without the linchpin of Jesus at the center of this little spiritual community that they had, everything starts to crumble. When Jesus was arrested, all of the disciples fled. The 12, they ran away. They were so terrified. And then after Jesus is dead and he's in the ground, they're gathering together and they're scared and they're behind locked doors and they don't know what to do. They're trying to figure things out. They're so full of fear. They're so full of doubt. And even when the tomb is empty, they still have so many fears and doubts and questions. And even when people are starting to say that they're seeing Jesus and that he's resurrected, even when the women are the first witnesses to Jesus, they're the ones, it's their moms and sisters and the women they've been traveling with. To those 12 disciples, it sounded like nonsense and they didn't believe. And then we see in Luke and in John, these gatherings of the disciples together, the 12, where they're just trying to figure things out. I want us to look together at Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn there with me. Luke 24 is where we're going to look at this because Jesus brought his disciples together into this spiritual community. But if we, if we stop right here, we see it wasn't just the spiritual community that was enough. Because once Jesus was dead, once he was gone, they were terrified. It, they were crumbling. Things were falling apart. But then in Luke 24, this is what we see. Starting in verse 36. There's two men who were on the road to Emmaus and Jesus met them and was talking to them and they came back and they reported this to the disciples. And as they're telling this story, it says in verse 36, and just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Jesus came and they encountered, they experienced Jesus again together. Jesus didn't just meet with them individually. He didn't just go to them one-on-one. But he comes and he is in their midst. He's among them. It's this shared experience that they have. This community again, centered around Jesus. And he said, peace be with you. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened? He asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubts? 
You know, if you're here today and you are frightened about things, there's a lot of uncertainty in your life about what is the future going to hold? What are things going to look like? If your heart is filled with doubt, Jesus is here for you today. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't condemn them. He shows up in their midst. He knows exactly what they're feeling. He knows exactly what they're facing. All of the things that are happening inside of their hearts. And yet he's there with them saying, hey, that he still loves them. He still can make use of them. Even though they fled, even though they scattered, even though they're so afraid and so full of doubt, Jesus comes and he meets them. And look at what Jesus does. He says, look at my hands, look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. When they are full of fear, when they are full of doubt, Jesus doesn't show up and say, remember my teaching. Remember all the good things I said to you. He doesn't even say, remember my way of life. Remember how my example of all I did for you. No, he shows up in their midst as they are frightened and they are full of doubts. And he says, look at me. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at the wounds that I bore. And yet I am alive. He's always pointing them to himself. And he goes to great lengths to show them the reality of his resurrection. To allow them to touch him, to poke and prod at him. He says, touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost. Because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. He's saying, hey, what else can I do to show you it's really me? I'm not a phantom. I'm not a specter or a spirit. I am here in the flesh. Look, I'll eat this fish in front of you just to prove my reality to you. Then he said, verse 44, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You know, if you are wrestling with scripture, with the Bible, can I trust this book? Can I trust what it says? I encourage you, pray and ask, God, would you open my mind? Jesus, would you open my mind to understand your scriptures? And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised. But stay here in the city until, I, until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Jesus appears to his disciples. He reforms this community of these believers. And again, it is centered around him. It's not just built on his teaching. It's not just built on his way of life. It's built on a resurrected Lord. And then from this point on, this is what changes the disciples. 
You know, I think it's so important for us in our journey of following Jesus, where we see what the disciples, they go on to do, but to pause and to remember, to reflect before Jesus shows up in the room, the fear that they had, the doubt that they had. When you're experiencing difficulties in your life and you're full of fear and you're full of doubt, Jesus comes and he meets with us. He helps us. We look to him. And while Jesus isn't going to walk into this room and allow us to poke and prod at his hands and his feet, we have the record of these men and the books that they wrote in the New Testament. We have their example of how they lived their lives. Of the original 12 disciples, Judas betrayed Jesus and then he killed himself. But of the other 11, from this point on, they never backed down in their belief in Jesus. They preached boldly. And even when they were arrested, even when some were executed, they continued. They spread out from where they were. They were sent out. They intentionally went out under the commission that Jesus made for them to go and to tell the world. And so these 11 disciples, tradition tells us that all of the 11 were martyred except for John. And they traveled extensively to bring the gospel to Russia, India, Persia, Armenia, Syria, Greece, and Ethiopia. They never backed down because they had seen, they had touched the risen Lord. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that their God had been their friend in the flesh, that they had walked with him, and that even when they had scattered and ran, he came to them and showed them the price he paid for them. And they lived out the rest of their life following after Jesus. How did the disciples improve themselves? They did it through spiritual community, not in isolation. Through encountering the resurrection, and through Jesus sending them the Holy Spirit. And I want us to consider today, how can we improve ourselves? How can you improve your family? How can we improve our church? It doesn't just happen in isolation. It happens in being part of a spiritual community where we are formed and shaped around Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. It comes from encountering and recognizing that Jesus truly did die and rise from the dead. It is the only thing that can possibly explain the change that takes place in the disciples' lives from when they go to being these scared, terrified men, ordinary men, to men who would not back down no matter the opposition they faced. It's the only explanation for the birth of the early church and the tremendous growth that we see is that Jesus truly did die and rise from the dead that he said he was going to, and then he really did it. And that's why he's our master, our Lord. That's why the early church called themselves slaves. He was their master. He was their Lord. They didn't develop alone. They were in community together. They didn't selfishly improve for themselves for their own benefits, but for the benefit of others. And I have learned in my life that I am truly the best version of myself when I am living in community with others. 
When I isolate myself, when it's just me, I tend to get weird. When there's nobody to correct me or to disagree with me, when it's just me agreeing with all of my own ideas, that's when things get weird. But I need to be a part of a community where we adjust each other, we correct each other, we encourage each other and love each other. The community that I'm a part of, they see me at my best and they also see me at my worst. And they love me at my best and they love me even at my worst. I'm so individualistic, I just want to improve myself on my own. But I need to be a part of a community that's shaped and forming me around Jesus, our risen Savior. The early church faced suffering, persecution, betrayals, challenges on all sides, but no one faced it alone. They had their brothers and sisters alongside of them. And so how did Jesus start the church? He took ordinary men and women and he brought them into spiritual community shaped around himself to live and grow following him together. And he died and rose again to empower them by his spirit to follow him. And so I want you to consider today, who is your spiritual found family? Who are you walking with? Who are you living in community with? Are you being shaped by other believers? Who encourages you to read your Bible and to pray? Who loves you and helps you grow? Who are you encouraging? Who are you helping? When we are part of a family, there are responsibilities that come with being part of a family. And we can gather together and encounter Jesus and we encourage each other and we love each other. We pour into one another. We correct and adjust each other. We do it as a family. Who's doing that in your life? And whose lives are you doing that into? Encouraging them, strengthening them, loving them. Today, can we close our eyes? Today, if you recognize the need inside of you to be part of a spiritual community that is shaping you and forming you around Jesus at the center, if that's a need you see inside of yourself to have other believers alongside you who are helping you, encouraging you, adjusting you, correcting you, if that's you today and you say, Jesus, I need that. Would you bring me into that level of community? that's you today, would you just slip up your hand and say, that's what I need. I need people to come alongside me. I need people to help me. I need brothers and sisters to walk with me. I can't do this in isolation. Many hands, many hands. Jesus, I pray, God, would you help us? Bring us into community. Help us to not just live in isolation, but God, to be this found family. Connect us with one another. Draw us together, Jesus. Help us as we are shaped and formed around you. Not alone, but together. Finally, if, if you're here today, as we have our eyes closed, 
and you recognize your need for Jesus. There's good news today. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. And that is the message that the disciples went and they preached about a risen Savior who could save you from your sins. And if that's you today and you recognize that you need Jesus to save you, you need to repent of your sin, you need to turn to Jesus. If that's you today, would you just slip up your hand and say, that's me, Jesus, would you save me from my sins? Jesus, would you be my Lord? Would you be my master? Can I be your disciple? Thank you. If that's you today, just in your own heart, right where you're at, just say, Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me? Save me from my sins and be my Lord and be my master.